All government, in its essence, is a conspiracy against the superior man. Its one permanent object is to oppress him and cripple him. If it be aristocratic in organization, then it seeks to protect the man who is superior only in law against the man who is superior in fact. If it be democratic, then it seeks to protect the man who is inferior in every way against both. It regiments men by force to make them as much alike as possible and as dependent upon one another as possible, to search out and combat originality amongst them. All it can see in an original idea is potential change, and hence an invasion of its prerogatives. The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think himself out of himself, without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. And so, if he is romantic, he tries to change it. And even if he is not romantic personally, he is very apt to spread discontent among those who are willing to embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, or am I? I honestly don't know at this point anymore. Uh, it doesn't really matter anyway, though. So my guest this week is Benjamin Dow, a professor of practice at Southern Methodist University with a focus in management studies. He recently sent me several papers that he's worked on with other folks about conspiracism and leadership. And full disclosure, in the midst of planning to have this episode, we also ended up collaborating on the luck research stuff that you all know I'm obsessed with at this point. So just to get our biases out there in the front, no open conspiracy here. So Ben, would you like to say hi to the void? Greetings, void. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time on top of all of the other annoyingly uh, having to deal with me talk about luck too much. So let me ask you first broadly, what was your, you know, how do we get to conspiracism studies for you? So like, what got you to management studies, first of all, and then how do you get from there to conspiracism studies? Yeah, there's definitely a ton of serendipity in that. I think uh, it was definitely not what I set out to study initially. It just sort of presented itself. So I, I had a prior career in consulting, came out on the very tech side of thing things, realized that people were way more interesting, and that kind of got me into management studies. I, I think us in the business school don't have a great reputation, but I can tell you that in my field, we, we very much care about people and mm -hmm. people doing well and enjoying their lives and bringing their whole selves to work and things of that nature. And then the conspiracy stuff just sort of landed in my lap. It was always something that I was sort of interested in, but not necessarily something I set out to research. But I think we all lived through the last few years and when opportunities presented themselves to get involved in this work and actually contribute intellectually to the field, uh, I, I just couldn't say no. And so that's sort of taken over all my research now and has become, aside from luck, mm -hmm. my major focus. I see. So you jumped on the the conspiracism, moral panic bandwagon with the rest of us and just, just <laughs> yeah, writing like that, that, writing that for citations. I understand. I get how this works. So let me start you off with the big picture if you're coming from that management perspective, obviously conspiracism wouldn't be your, your first world. So you'd probably be doing a bunch of lit review. What was sort of your experience doing that lit review, sort of broadly speaking about the quality and content, co the content, I was going to say um, quantity, but the sort of the content themes of conspiracism research that you came across? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. So I, my background definitely is more social psychological. And so I tended to focus on that literature, which is a lot focused on the mechanisms and what leads to belief in conspiracy, not a lot about what role it plays in society, 
whether or not conspiracy theories is a good thing. There's been increasing focus on what is the result of those beliefs, but that still is relatively new. So as people primarily interested in the psychological mechanisms and your focus on the management studies part is important because actually one of my goals is to convince the management literature that this is something they should be a lot more interested in. Uh, but I've got a lot of work to do there. But it, conspiracism happens in organizations. It happens to organizations. It's definitely something that they need to start reckoning with. Do you feel like, why do you feel like they're resistant to engaging with it? Uh, it doesn't fit into, I think, our traditional views of, of what we should be focused on in management. Uh, it's probably a broader societal issue. And I don't know that everybody is on board with that being something that businesses need to be thinking about and addressing. But I think there's a, a push in that direction. I, I don't know if it's resistant so much as it's new and, and there's some resistance to really engaging with, with brand new topics like this. Mm, I understand. And I want to talk with you about that question of like, what causes conspiracism and what, what does conspiracism cause in turn? Because I do think there's like a lot of concern around the, the quality of the research around those kind of topics. Um, but I know, and I also know, I acknowledge that you, you say you're a social scientist and it's generally considered a hate crime to ask you to define your terms. Uh, but I thought it might be fun to at least see what your feelings were about the words conspiracy and conspiracy theory. Do you have a like formalized definition of these concepts? How do you see that play out in the literature? So it's funny you say that it's a hate crime because I was taught by my mentors that the first thing you always do is define your terms. Otherwise, we don't know what we're talking about. So I'm on board. I doesn't mean they're always easy to define or that we all agree, <laughs> but I think it's definitely important. Um, I, I think of conspiracy theories, or at least the definition I, I lean towards, is it's explanations of events in which powerful actors are working in secret, pursuing their own self-interest, basically. Mm -hmm. We can quibble with that definition, but broadly, I think that's what a conspiracy theory is. A conspiracy belief is when somebody believes that theory. You'll notice that that's pretty open and it's not negatively or positively valenced. And it definitely would include real conspiracies that do occur. So when you say not negatively or positively valenced, the one of the one of the features you gave there was that they have a uh, that they're acting in their own self-interests, mm. which you know, and, and and this is something that like um, in the, in the philosophy literature, folks like Dentith, who I've um, you know, who've given me pushback on being overly generalist about things. I mean, I think they make reasonable arguments that like, um, you know, there are kind of conspiracy things that we would consider a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory that don't necessarily have that kind of negative intention. But it is true that in common parlance, right? If we're just asking the person on the street, what do they mean by it? It usually will have that kind of ill intent connotations to it. So how do you, as a researcher, how do you make a decision about what you're supposed to mean when you're researching it, what you're asking people about? Like, do you just want them to mean the thing that we usually mean? Or do you, is it important that they understand what it actually means first before asking them about it in that sense? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think the reason we go broad is because we're interested in the psychological mechanisms in general. Mm -hmm. And I think it's wrong to believe that the psychological mechanisms that lead to belief in what we might call grand conspiracies or what you called conspiracy theories, like these big, obviously not tenably correct ideas are different from the ones that lead us to believe in everyday conspiracies. Like our friends are planning a surprise birthday party or or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you want to do something more negatively valenced, right, that there's collusion between a couple of companies to do price fixing that is mm -hmm. maybe more likely to be true. I think that's why you get us going broad is some pushback on that idea that those are different things because it makes it too easy to dismiss conspiracy theorists as a separate group of people. They're engaged in a separate psychological ph phenomenon when in reality, we all have some maybe not empirically supportable beliefs and we all have some ability to engage in conspiratorial type thinking. And I think it's it's wrong to make a clean separation there. Now, I understand the desire to do it if you want to talk about outcomes, but we actually usually try to sidestep the truthiness argument, leave that to the philosophers, like whether or not you can justify <laughs> believing in, in conspiracy yeah. theories and, and whether or not that's functional. I, I think there's a really interesting argument that sometimes some amount of conspiratorial thinking is functional in society because it helps uncover true conspiracies. So 
I try not to think of it as good and good or bad necessarily. I will say that my natural tendency is to think conspiracy beliefs tend to have negative outcomes. Um, and, and, and to latch right. onto those, those big ideas, you know, the big lie, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to say that you, you feel like you're going broad. Uh, the criticism that I think folks like Dentith are raising is that your definition is, is in fact not broad enough that like, hmm. We should include the surprise party, but we should also include conspiracies that are benevolent, for example. I think you could have a very large scale conspiracy theory, you know, run by some very benevolent supercomputers or something that would still be a conspiracy theory, but it wouldn't be towards the computer's ends, right? It would be towards the end of human beings or something like that. Um, and, and I think we would still want to count that as a conspiracy theory. So I think it's, to me, it's, I think it's valuable to distinguish between like, harmful dangerous conspiracy theories or conspiracy theories that imply you know that scapegoat or imply moral intent or something like that and it's probably also the case that those are the ones that we want to worry the most about we just don't want to kind of load that into our base definition it seems like so how would you define harmful conspiracy theories well, right. And then it gets very, very difficult, right? So I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to this kind of particularist turn. And then I think, oh, and now we're in a lot more trouble even than I thought we were epistemically because it's like, you know, to take a take. Um, so I was going to ask you about this one later on, but I think it's good for us to just sort of front load it as a hard case, right? Literally right now, as we're recording, there's a massive, it appears to be a massive chemical spill in Ohio. Uh, it appears to be incredibly bad. And there's a lot of people claiming that the media is trying to cover up silence that the government is trying to, or so that the government and parts of the media, but like uh, reporters are getting arrested or something like that. You know, looking at that, you know, material, is it a harmful and dangerous conspiracy theory to claim that the government is covering up a massive chemical crisis? I don't know. It might be. It might also be true. And it might also be reasonable to believe it at the same time. Like I think, like the harmful part is a question of what are the implicate, you know, like what happens when people believe the thing. Um, so like anti-Semitic conspiracism is an easy case, right? Anti-Semitic yeah. conspiracism is both demonstrably false and incredibly harmful. Right. But there's a lot of hard edge cases. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why we dance around it and leave some of those arguments to philosophers because we're interested in what causes it. Mm. And then what are the consequences of it? So definitely it leads right. to more extreme action. It leads to more polarization. If you're asking me, like, mm -hmm. how, how concerned should we be about this or how should we address that kind of conspiracism? I mean, it, I think it kind of depends right now on where those conspiracy theories grow, go. Um, yeah, I guess the question the question that I'm curious about, and this will get us you know, get into talking about the, your research here a little bit, is like, to what extent should we be concerned that if we don't hammer out these definitional issues, our attempts to actually figure out what's causing psychologically these different behaviors will be sort of compromised by ambiguity in our language or something like that, or in how our, our, our you know, the people you're studying are going to read the questions. Uh, so, you know, for example, I get, we can, again, tie it down to hard examples. Um, in one of your papers, y'all use the lab leak as a case where it's sort of viewed as an unjustified belief to think that the lab leak was uh, the lab leak account of COVID um, where, where, where it is in some way a nefarious process, though it's not clear in the question exactly what is meant there, like that that's a kind of conspiracy theory. Um, how do we assess if that's a good thing to ask somebody about when we're trying to assess like their level of conspiratorial thinking, for example? Yeah. So no question's perfect. Uh, so right. I'll, I'll say that also when, when we, when we actually measured that, um, it was at the time a lot less controversial as to whether or not it happened. And I think there was pretty clear, uh, we're seeing pretty clear, uh, that the, all the scientists were sort of saying like that wasn't possible. So at the time, I think, uh, the majority mm -hmm. of scientists were pretty clear that that was not something that was likely. Uh, but I think, I think it opens the case up case too. We should have had, right? Like, but yeah, go ahead. But I think it opens up the idea that it, it doesn't matter. That's cons that's a conspiracy belief, whether or not it's true. Uh, and I mm -hmm. think the behavioral outcomes are the same, whether or not it's true uh, to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. The concerns that we have about conspiracism creating um, you know, more extreme behavior or, uh, more violent behavior or more in-group favoritism, um, you know, those kinds of things. I think that they tend to be true regardless. 
of mm-hmm. uh, another question is also um is it the conspiracy theory driving that or is there something driving the conspiracy theory belief and the behavior so is there a general right. skepticism of the government to start with that's actually driving both mm-hmm. um I, yeah I mean, and, and i go ahead yeah no I, I totally want to get into like the, the like the driving forces like the various different theories about what is causing it um psychologically i think it's fair to ask like the first question on that front should be is it in your view is there any ever a case where like it's reasonable to be a conspiracy theorist quote unquote where you would say like that person's a conspiracy theorist and they're very like reasonable about it or something like that um or is it like the the point what we're trying to say here is that like this term should jet should mean doing this in the wrong kind of way or something yeah i mean this is goes back to my argument that making a hard distinction between conspiracy theorist and the rest of us is probably wrong. We're all a little bit, it's degrees. It's not categories, right? We're all some Mm -hmm. degree of conspiracy theorists. We all hold some conspiracy theories, whether Mm -hmm. or not they're justified is a different question, but we all hold some of them. And so I think making a hard distinction between the two is probably wrong. Okay. I think that's a fair point. So, and I think it goes along with that to say that you know, when we talk about causes of belief in conspiracy, it's not here's the one thing that causes all of them, right? It's like there's a bunch right. of different causes and they all mix together in weird ways. So do you want to say a little bit about what your sense is of the potential arguments for what's causing conspiracy belief in this sense? Yeah, there's some really good work by Karen Douglas and some of her colleagues, which has looked at Um, three broad sets of motivations that lead people into conspiracy theories. Uh, One is uh, desire, dealing with uncertainty in the world. And conspiracy theories can give you a sense of certainty, a sense of knowledge. It's that whole idea that we're the, we're the ones, we're not the sheeple, we're the ones who have pulled the veil from over our eyes and we see truth, right? And that, that epistemological certainty is attractive. Uh, Mm -hmm. One is more control, uh, so wanting to have a sense of control in your life, uh, the sense that there's structure to the world, that is the one that I spend more time studying. Uh, and the last is for things related to either your own self-esteem or group self-esteem. Uh, this is where disempowered groups especially tend to engage in more conspiracy theories because it, it helps you feel more positively about your group, that you're beset by some outside forces that are against you. And that's why you're disempowered. So group related ideas and and related to that individual self-esteem that's tied to being a member of a group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sympathetic to all of those to varying degrees. Do you have a feeling about like, is there really like a hard line distinction between these three or is it similar to like the other things we're talking about where, you know, lack of control bleeds into the self-esteem disempowerment stuff? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's definitely a super hard line. Um, I think what they were trying to do was make sense of a pretty big literature and Mm -hmm. try to boil it down uh, into a few categories so we could better grapple with it. But yeah, I don't necessarily think that it's ever just one or the other. It's probably often a combination of things. And and it could be one more acutely during a certain period of time. So if control is what's really being threatened in your life, then maybe that is, is the big driver in that moment. But maybe at a different time, it's something else. And theoretically, if we're all psychologically designed to take pleasure in all of these things, even if one of the things like a, a sudden loss of sense of control is what initially puts you on that track, the feeling of certainty or knowledge could be something that then starts to help reinforce yeah. what, you know, that feelings like the positive feelings in that kind of sense. So eventually all of them could, in theory, be part of the process in that way. Yeah. One of the things we've argued, too, is that that the group social piece is really important. So it might be some more Mm -hmm. individual psychological mechanism that leads you into it. But once you built your social circle around it, then that becomes a powerful motivator. And it's hard to ever extract yourself from a conspiracy theory if it's a almost a requirement of being a part of the groups which you now identify with and which make up your social circles. In those situations, do you see it as roughly synonymous with like in the technical sense, a cult that involves, you know, sort of insulating community of reinforcing identity that it's hard to get out of because you become sort of completely insulated within that group. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely some overlap. I'm not super familiar with the cult literature, but I think there's def- mm-hmm. those mechanisms are similar. There's also some at least anecdotal evidence that the people who are big believers in some of these well-known conspiracy theories that are all-encompassing, like QAnon, for example, the people who leave those groups or, or the flat earthers are often people who have another social group that they can kind of latch in, latch onto that can sub in, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. which is why if you have friends that are super conspiratorial, if you or family members, if you can tolerate maintaining those relationships and setting boundaries about not talking about that stuff, being still connected to them and giving them an option, a way out, an idea that they'll be accepted into another social group if they leave, you know, mm-hmm. is helpful in the long run about giving them a path out. Mm-hmm. Though ethically super irrogatory in the sense that no one's obligated to do that work if they can't do it anymore kind of thing. But yes, absolutely. It's helpful psychologically, right? Uh, so let's talk about a couple of, like, break down these um, mechanisms a little bit here. The illusion of control one is one that I find particularly interesting, of course, because it's connected to my own free will luck weirdness. And, you know, I think the fe- the desire for an illusion of control drives all sorts of harmful behavior, not just potentially conspiracism. So I admit my own biases and being sort of inclined to think that there could be something meaningful to this. But I also think it's worth unpacking that there are a couple of different ways in which lack of control or illusion of control leads to could potentially lead to conspiracism and um you know, how conspiracism gives an individual a sense of control could potentially be different for different folks. Do you want to like maybe dive in a little bit into that literature and sort of what are the different ways by which these these things connect together? Yeah. So the the fun thing about so the idea is you want to maintain a sense of control in your life. It's a fundamental need that all of us have to feel like we have some agency and some control in our life. And when that is threatened, then we become more open to conspiracy theories. Now, conspiracy theories are not the only answer. Uh, There's a ton of work here that shows when you lack that control, what you look for is if you don't personally have control, you want the world to seem like it's more structured and less chaotic and more control as a way to compensate. And so that can be um, seeing more patterns that don't exist. That's where conspiracy theories come in. But it can also be belief in an interventionist God more. It can be greater support for government structures that provide, you know, a sense of certain, you know, structure and control to the world. So even if you're not in control, you want somebody else to be. Conspiracy mm-hmm. theories could be one answer, but it's not the only one. So it does sort of depend on do you get exposed to conspiracy theories at the right time? Are there ones that are either readily available or easily constructed that will bring you that sense of structure? Whether or not that mm-hmm. actually satisfies your need for control, I think is still the subject of some debate. Right now, my best read on the literature is that it probably doesn't. Um, it, mm-hmm. my, one of my co-authors coined the term epistemological junk food, which I love. But it's the idea that you know you, you take these in, at, but they never really satisfy that need for a sense of control. Yeah. And in that vein, especially since you brought up the idea of uh, interventionist God, do you see anything in the research connecting this to belief in just worlds? Like the idea that like this is a just world that we live in, and I I know that to be true because God is loving, and the reason people suffer must therefore be some sort of evil conspiracy by the Jews. I have trouble recalling a specific paper off the top of my head, but absolutely, I think that there's been some stuff linking, um, yeah, the lack of control to belief in a just world. It's the same idea. It gives you structure. It makes the mm-hmm. world not seem quite as chaotic. Yeah, well, this is really interesting to me because, and the research on this is, again, all the social science research is messy. We're all caveating heavily here, but like in the same stuff that I look at, there's a cluster of beliefs that is like religiosity, belief in just world, you know, conservatism, punitive justice, all of those things sort of hang together to some extent, it seems like. And if conspiracism is, it seems like is also could potentially be in that cluster. It would be interesting, especially in relevant to our sort of discussions about the question of political asymmetries with regard to these issues. Do you feel like there's a possibility that like, so like, do you feel like there is a, in the real current world, an asymmetry between conservatives and other political alignments on amount of conspiracism in play right now? And is that partly psychological, do you think? So there, there definitely is right now. I don't think, I think the literature is very clear that right now conservatives are, have more conspiratorial beliefs than liberals right now. 
And and that's usually the skill they use is conservative to liberal. I know that's not perfect, but mm-hmm. the, that's the one that's usually used. Um, it's all we have in America. So, I mean, why not? Exactly. Um, yeah, it gets so much more complicated when we look at political parties in, in other countries. Uh, so we just won't ever do that ever. Let's just not. That's usually, you know, that that's yeah. usually what we do. We just ignore other countries in our research. Right. Um, I wish that weren't true, but that's sadly more true than I'd like to admit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. The question is why? So you asked, is it because of a psychological difference or is it just a quirk of the current people that are in charge right now? Is it something about conservatism that causes these degree, these beliefs to be more prevalent in that population? Or is it something about our current time in history, the, the people that have happened to rise to power, the fact that they're just you know, the political organizations, the online environment? You know, I, I argued that conspiracy belief is just one of many possible solutions to these motivations mm-hmm. that we have? Is it just that conservatives watch more Fox News and the internet's kind of tailored to expose them to more conspiracy theories? So they've just had more exposure to them. And we know for sure from a lot of studies that exposure increases belief. And so, you know, they've just gotten fed more of them. And so they take more of them on. Or is it something about conservatism itself that leads to more belief? I don't know that I know the answer to that. So you might have more insight to that than I do. Well, I do at first sort of feel like Fox News, while I I think it is terrible and is, you know, like pouring gas on the fire, isn't the starting of the fire because it's a lagging indicator. It's just chasing an audience. So there had to be an audience for that conspiracism first, in my opinion. You can some extent manufacture an, an audience for it. But like, I think this goes back at least to the 60s historically where, you know, conservatives have increasingly felt again lack of control because society is progressing and the world that they want to exist is less like the world that exists more and more every day which is a pretty easy way to lose your sense of control and so i think what the conservative political party fed them instead of actually preventing social progress which it couldn't do was you know a bunch of conspiracy theories about who's causing all the social progress and you know how they're evil and how they're coming for your children and stuff like that and that, you know, kept them in power for the 60 years, but like eventually the bill comes due and then you get January 6th. Um, so my feeling is that like it, it's both in the sense that it's probably the case that this is a historical quirk, but also if the psychological material bears out, it does seem likely that there would be some asymmetry about, you know, conservative distrust leading to or conservative beliefs in general to leading to conspiracism that doesn't mean you wouldn't you know see from the marxist something similar but like um yeah that's sort of my vibe on it at this point yeah i mean i'm, I'm always sympathetic to both answers uh it's mm-hmm. rarely human behavior is rarely singularly caused by one thing but yeah right. i agree it's both is definitely a possibility what i don't want people to do is think of this as a conservative phenomenon because it's definitely not just a conservative phenomenon yeah, let's talk about the let's talk about the, uh, the alternative version too. So, I think there's a sense in which conspiracism in the in the like certainty knowledge awakened inner you know like no longer sheeple sense does effectively mimic and in some ways overlap with what we call wokeness these days. Right, woke itself is a is a conspiracism kind of term in some contexts because it means sort of getting woke to the like power conspiracies that are oppressing your people kind of stuff. Um, and, and like, if those are real conspiracies, then like, you know, again, that could be a justified case of being like conspiratorial, um, but it raises real problems because you have these like genuinely marginalized communities who could be at higher risk on, you know, they're on the left, they're in favor of non-conservatism, but they're still sympathetic to thinking the Jews are the ones causing the problem because, you know, they've, they've onboarded various explanations for why their people are not doing better in that sense. So do you feel like, we are at a point where if things, even if things improve, there could then be a higher risk that like left-wing conservative, left-wing conspiracism sort of continues to bloom in the sort of path of like wokeness. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I definitely see what you're saying. There's, there's overlap between talking about systemic, systemic injustices and the idea that those systems are, there's powerful people behind those intentionally doing that. Um, Right. And, and like, you know, Foucauldian analysis is going to say there's no single force of power. It's just a bunch of different power groups pushing on each other. But like, you know, I think a lot of people who don't go to that place, but instead just get as far as like big systems are bad rather than just individuals are bad. 
still see the big systems in a kind of conspiratorial psychological mindset almost. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there probably is some truth to the fact that there's greater openness going forward. I think part of it may also be driven by the political polarization. When you start putting your group and, um, ahead of trying to have, you know, policy-based rational evidence-based approaches to fixing real world problems. Instead, it starts to become us versus them. That opens you Mm -hmm. up a lot more to conspiracy theories about the others that are out to get you um, and can let you adopt weird beliefs that are a lot less evidence-based because it's about the groups rather than the the outcomes or the the goals we're trying to achieve or the values we hold. Yeah. And to tie in the other sort of mechanism you mentioned the kind of disempowerment i you know often what i see in some of the literature around QAnon, for example is the the vibe of feeling like you can do something right like it's not just that the world is no longer chaotic it's also i now have a roadmap for taking down the government or something like that it's not a good roadmap but it's a roadmap right and you know that's better than what i had before and I, again, I think you see potential concerning overlaps with the like social justice stuff where it's like, you know, people get handed some new language to talk about social injustice and that feels like the power to do something. And so they, they, they run with it in a way that isn't always necessarily ideal and sometimes ends up in that conspiratorial place as well. Again, um, do you, what do you, so what do you think about the literature around the like ability to do something kind of um, way of understanding this? Yeah, I think, so I think QAnon's a really interesting one because I don't necessarily, I think it really is about the psychological. It gives you a sense that there's control, that there's structure, that you are empowered, but it actually doesn't ask you to do much. It's all about Mm. trust the plan, right? Mm. You were, other than putting out memes and spreading the conspiracy theory itself, being digital warriors, there wasn't actually a call to do a whole lot for most of the lifespan of that conspiracy theory. You could argue that it kind of goes into January 6th, but I think that's driven more by the big lie. And there's just Mm -hmm. overlap between people that believe the various conspiracy theories. But yeah, it's a big tent conspiracy theory, but it mostly asks you to trust that other people are doing the work. So it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily empowering. It's not asking you to do anything. It gives you, makes you feel good about your group, maybe gives you a sense that the world's not as chaotic as it seems, but it doesn't ask you to personally actually do anything. And it doesn't create necessarily a collective action together, I think. Yeah. The way you put it that way, it makes me, and thinking what you said about junk food, it reminds me of when CT has been on the show talking about porn of different kinds. Um, You know, like what do you call, uh, Oh, like moral outrage porn, right? You know, watching stuff so that you can feel moral outrage, but not actually have to do anything or something like that. There's a sense in which QAnon is a kind of conspiracism porn where it is, you know, you you have very little risk and very little involvement and very little responsibility, but you get the maximum like dopamine hit of feeling like you're doing quote unquote something, right? Very similar again to the people who you know, want to do social justice. And so they do that by, again, posting memes a lot, right? That's not saying that memes aren't great. I love memes, but there is a sense in which like a low stakes buy in that way. It's like when you're um, when they maybe apocryphally figured out that that um, that people would buy mixing packets if you had to add an egg, even though they could totally manage it without the egg. It gives you a little bit of sense of like you're doing a thing when you're baking and QAnon is, you know, calls it baking. So clearly there's a connection there, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think. I think that's part of why it was so successful because there's nothing on the outside looking at that conspiracy theory that would tell you why that would take off. But I think actually that element of it, and I think you're right. I like the word conspiracy porn in some ways is probably why it was so successful to some extent. That said, I don't want to ignore the fact that there's real consequences and damage from it. People losing family members, you know, losing their social connections and, you know, so there is damage from it, but it's not, you know, as direct as some of the things we say saw on January 6th. Right. Is the problem of stochastic terrorism, right? Statistically, most people will just post memes, but some tiny percentage will do other things that are very, very bad. Um, Storm into a a pizza parlor, even though that predates QAnon and was probably part of what QAnon absorbed. Sure, for sure. One of the many things that it it absorbed into its blob self. Um, So let me ask you then, do you feel like this data, at least to some extent, 
supports the anecdotal evidence that a lot of folks who work with people who are coping with conspiracism that like spirals often tend to occur in moments of personal crises. Yeah, I think that's totally aligned, especially when you talk about lack of control. Um, we also know that conspiracism tends to increase after societal crises as well. So world wars, um, economic downturns, things like that. So, uh, and our own research t- saw that after you um, win an election, Oh, I did want to mention that, but I'll go back mm-hmm. to But after after you lose an election, for example, you maybe you're more prone to conspiracy theories. Uh, during COVID lockdown, which was a crisis for all of us, um, you know, you're more open to conspiracy. So I think, yeah, during times of crisis, we're absolutely more open. And whether that be personal crisis or broadly shared, you know, crisis that everybody's experiencing communally. Mm. And yeah, so... In those situations, so let me ask you this, actually, this, this brings up another important point. So far, we've been kind of taking it as given that, like, there is a problem. It's increasing. It's somewhat asymmetric. There are folks who you cite when you do your studies as well, where you, they talk about this idea that conspiracism isn't actually increasing if you look at the numbers properly. And conspiracism, you know, like all of the talk about it, like the golden age of conspiracism, et cetera, is actually like a moral panic meant to sell newspapers and not, you know, or sell clicks, I guess we'll say today, but not a, you know, tracking any actual rise in a real problem. How would you like address that kind of concern or pushback? So I think the, as you know, I don't necessarily agree with those arguments. Um, This is definitely... Uh, I think they're making a very narrow argument, which is that conspiracism hasn't increased by which they mean people aren't necessarily that, that for any conspiracy theory that you look at, you're not seeing this increase in belief over time. I think that probably part of that depends on when you measure it. Most of them probably Mm -hmm. take off quickly and then level out and then do stay pretty flat. And so that argument is probably true. I'm sympathetic to the idea that, we always think that our time is unique and our circumstances are unique. And when we look at history, that's a lot less true than we tend to think. And mm-hmm. so the idea that conspiracy theories have always been pretty widespread and a lot of people believed in them, I think that is true. But I think where they're missing the point is that they may be weaponized in a different way right now, um, that they may, the intensity of belief may be higher that the extent to which it is all encompassing, it becomes a core part of your identity and it affects things like all of your social circles. It affects a lot more of your decision-making that that might be different. And part of that Mm -hmm. may be because of social media, the internet, rather than living in a community where maybe a couple people share our weird beliefs, but we spend a lot of time interacting with other people who are pretty similar to us. We can spend all of our time in communities that are formed around these beliefs and that is the main thing we share. And we're not really forced to interact with people who disagree with us or do who don't hold the same weird beliefs. Uh, and so as a result, it can become a much greater part of our lives. That is, mm-hmm. I think, the big question, much more so than on average is conspiracy belief increasing. Yeah, I think that's a way to put it. And I think it raises this tension that I struggle with too, which is, again, the, the you're not special pushback, which I think is really valuable, right? Nobody's special, your time isn't special, etc. But like balancing that with what I think it's fair to say has been pretty radical change socially in the recent period, as opposed to certain periods of human history. And that like, we've, we are currently in a period of, of incredibly accelerating technology in the sense, not just of like technology is improving rapidly, but the technology we already have radically inter- increases interconnectedness while also, as you pointed out, sort of isolating people, paradoxically, um, and that that could bring about a, like a uniquely harmful situation, not in the sense that like we're super important, but in the sense of like, you know, you bring enough things together and you get World War One or something like that, you know, it's just like enough bad things together and then it cascades. So, yeah, I guess I, I wonder how how you think, you know, when individuals are trying to calibrate their level of concern around these issues or their approaches to it, like how they should try to think about balancing those sort of competing tensions. I mean, I think to some extent that 
it doesn't matter if the goal is to address the more harmful elements or more harmful consequences of these beliefs, then it shouldn't matter whether this is a uniquely bad time, right? So we could set that mm. question aside. It's an interesting one. Um, you know, I'd be curious to hear what you think about, is this something that's going to last over the long term? Uh, is it something that's shifting in our society? Or is this just, we, ha- we have a new technology, we've got to figure out how to use it in more productive ways, and it just takes time to assimilate into society, you, you know, mm. this new tech. Right. So I'm more I'm more bullish on us assimilate like us coping with emerging technologies than I am us coping with the current state of the GOP is the way I would put it. Hmm. I don't see any functional mechanisms. And it's been 10 years now of like saying I, I do believe the GOP is in a kind of death spiral. And it is part of the fact that they have sort of been cashing checks on conspiracism that they were never going to be able to back at the end of the day. And I think I don't know how anyone stops them from doing that, or at least like, you know, taking everyone down with them in that conspiracism spiral. So that's my that's where I get scared less with the like technology, because I think human beings are very malleable creatures. And, you know, within a generation or two, we'll have some amount of processing capacity to manage the situation or, you know, we'll we'll have developed enough technology to counter the technology or something like that. We'll keep it somewhat you know, it's bad. I think our epistemic situation is bad, but I think that will improve faster than the the, the political situation will, it seems to me. See, I, I tend to be probably a bit of an optimist. Uh, I think you're right that they're going to go down. They're going to drag a lot of us and a lot of society with them, but that, you know, progress is never a linear march forward and there's always backlash. And so this mm-hmm. is just one of the things you got to get through. We're going to get dragged back. And then hopefully as a society, we we come out of it again and we make a little more progress mm, but we'll I see so. we'll see or, or it all crashes all the way down who knows we don't have enough test cases um so let but me then ask we have the chance to put together a radically new society who knows what that looks like and then we'll need Hopefully. all the philosophers to help <laughs> no that's a bad idea uh <laughs> let me ask you about your studies some and you did a bunch of studies in these different papers so we can't go through the details of every single one of them but let me ask you was there one that you particularly found valuable, interesting, you know, surprised by the results or illuminating or, you know, like the one that you would want people to focus on the most if they were looking at this material? Mm. You know, it's hard to pick one. You're asking me to pick between my children, right? Pick your uh, favorite no. child. Yep, do it. Um, Sophie, I, this, let's go. <laughs> uh, I think, I kind of think the elections, so we were looking at two things. I, I talked broadly about this idea that lack of control increases belief in conspiracism. We extended that a little bit to support for leaders who use conspiratorial rhetoric. That was obviously spurred on by some famous political figures that I think we can all think of, maybe Trump, Bolsonaro, Mm -hmm. uh, some similar people. Uh, And so I thought that was really interesting because one, it it says that the reason maybe we're seeing more of this and that people are succeeding is because people feel like they don't have control. Uh, The other thing that I really like about that set of studies is that um, it shows the solution as well. So that relationship between sense of control and conspiracism is hydraulic. What that means is that if you boost Mm. people's sense of personal agency, if you give them more control in their lives, and I think a lot of the policies that you and I would probably agree with would tend to do that for people, uh, that decreases the amount of conspiracy that they, conspiracism, conspiracy beliefs that they engage in. So if we if we help people, if we literally give them more control or highlight the control they have, that can be a, a useful way to to stop some of this. And understanding this is probably a hard thing to parse in a study like this. You know, would your would you be concerned about people taking this and saying, well, this is a good reason to give like a noble lie approach to free will because that boosts people's sense of control in the short term rather than like giving them genuine control, which is hard to do. Let's give them, you know, some other better illusion of control than conspiracism or something like that. Or do you think that that's like a a bad sort of short term stopgap kind of solution? It's a good question. Do you think people think of free will and sense of control in the, do you think those are overlapping concepts? Or... I think most people have a un, like an unspecified, vague notion of the concept of control that could include anything that you will attach to it, and that mm. intuitively they do attach free will, moral responsibility via the concept of control. And you probably could, to some extent, 
trick someone into believing they have more control than they do by really convincing them that they have, you know, a libertarian free will or something like that. Yeah. So this might be my bias. I think for most people in most of their lives, they don't worry too much about whether or not free will is an illusion or whether it's real, because we mostly need to live our lives as if as if we have free will just to be interact in everyday society. Whereas mm-hmm. I think sense of control, do I have the ability to make decisions in my life that affect me? Am I constrained by my environment? Um, the way we ask about control when we look at those scales is very much sort of freedom ask, right? Do you have the freedom Mm -hmm. to make personal choices? Um, Do you have the resources and abilities you need to take actions that you want to take in your life? And so I think that I don't think we need to tell any noble lies about free will in order to give people a sense of control, I guess, is what I'm arguing. Yeah, though, I would say I think a lot of people colloquially, when they think of free will, they think of that kind of do they have the freedom to make their, you know, to to pick one apple or two or an orange or whatever, Mm -hmm. like kind of stuff. Um, They you know, not not necessarily consciously, but like that's kind of going to be the place that a lot of people will go. And and understandably, that's a good thing. Like, like what I would call, you know, agency rather than free will um, or, you know, autonomy in some thinner sense of it than, than like radical autonomy is a good and something that we want to promote in our society. And that's sort of kind of what I was getting at is that I, I also think that there are folks who will say, you know, we should convince people that they have a lot more control than they do so that we can justify, you know, punitive justice models because we think that those will be better for society, for example. So you can get all sorts of weird justifications around convincing people that they have kinds of control beyond just the like, I can lift a glass kind. So it's interesting, you, it's interesting you say agency. Those the control scale that's most commonly used actually has kind of two dimensions and they're so highly correlated that they don't always fall out separately, but one is basically personal agency and the other is environmental constraints. So are outside people Mm. controlling you versus do you have that personal agency? Uh, But they move together so closely that often they're, they're hard to separate. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is a larger problem I have with locus of control stuff, which is that are you really just testing how much someone believes in the self other boundary? (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is a whole separate question yeah Yeah. sorry you were saying go ahead um you asked do we do we need to can we uh, so my argument would be i the study tells you what will work and Mm -hmm. will lies work uh maybe i don't know for how long right how much Mm -hmm. can you perpetuate sort of those noble lies Um, And I would say a much more sustainable and long-term solution is to actually give people control, give them resources, give them uh, the ability to act in the ways that they want to, uh, as long as it's not harming other people. But that's not to say you couldn't use it the other way. That, you know, that decision of what to do with it, I I, I can't control, right? So people might suggest that that Mm -hmm. is an easier route. I think long-term it's probably the wrong route. But that has more to do with my other beliefs and values and things like that. So mm-hmm. I can, all I, I can tell curious. you is, is what works. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you before we talk, we dive a little more into the like, here are my policy conclusions. Here's what works kind of stuff. You know, I want to, I, I handed this off because um, amongst just the reason of not having the mental capacity to do what I feel like would be an appropriately critical deep dive into your methods, uh, both because we work together and because of the past two weeks, but also you know, I just wanted to get an outside eye on it. So I did pass this off to dentists to get a little bit of feedback. And they had some good sort of, I think, um, you know, functional nitpicky criticisms that I think are worth bringing up here. And one of them was, you mentioned conspiracy rhetoric versus conspiratorial theorizing. And I'd love to hear about like, as someone who likes to define terms, do you you see those as separate things? How do you distinguish between them in terms of what you're measuring? and, And what do you see as the relationships between them? Yeah. So it's a good question. Also, I mean, this, I think what you're talking about just mm-hmm. broadly uh, goes to a point I actually make for a lot of people, which is you should never believe one study, right? Every study mm-hmm. has its flaws, right? So you should be looking at the body of literature and is there a general movement in one direction? And I'm sure this community has talked all about you know, the limitations mm-hmm. of any one study and researcher degrees of freedom and biases and publication biases. So yeah, definitely don't ever by one study. It's just one data point in a broader set. Um, Good caveat. No. <laughs> uh, 
So the difference between conspiratorial rhetoric and conspiracy beliefs or conspiracy theorizing, I think the rhetoric is you are endorsing publicly, uh, at least when we talk about leaders who use this kind of rhetoric, they're endorsing publicly conspiratorial explanations of events. I, at one point, had in one of my papers a fairly lengthy discussion of whether or not they actually had to believe it. So mm. a leader well, could, it could, it could sprout would, yeah. from... Yeah, it could sprout from genuine belief, or it could be entirely a rhetorical strategy where you know better. And I I think we'd look at some of our leaders and guess which ones are doing which, right? We definitely have Mm -hmm. leaders we look at and go, oh, yeah, they know better, but they're just spouting that stuff versus people we probably suspect believe it 100%. Um, So that's Mm -hmm. where I'd make a big distinction is that the rhetoric is something that you do, not something that you believe. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea on the rhetoric side, um, on the belief, you know, do you have to believe? And this is something that actually comes up a lot in like conspiracism tracker worlds, where you often get the question, do you think that this person who you pay way, way too much of time studying actually believes what they believe? And almost everyone, even though all of us will, will ask that question of ourselves and others at various points, when we ask each other, we're always like, we remind each other like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter and you can never know and probably yes like they they probably all it seems like are likely to believe it potentially because it's easier psychologically to sell something you believe than something you don't you know the cognitive dissonance costs energy um but like we also can never prove one way or another what they really believe and also I've, i've yet to come across a like a good policy suggestion that would hinge on whether or not the person actually believed it necessarily um but i think you know it it is hard for us to get away from that question if i think and i think i wonder why i wonder if it's because we're wanting to assign moral responsibility to the ones that like are doing it knowingly in a way that we wouldn't to the ones who accidentally just really believed it um what do you feel like is the, the like driving force behind that question yeah it's a good question i, I will throw in the caveat that we did try to measure whether or not people thought the leader that we gave them believed what they were saying. And generally, yeah, they think that the leader believes what they're saying. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it might be different with real world leaders. I don't know. We so we're using kind of fictional ones. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do we need, why do we need to make that distinction? I, I think I agree with your statement that it is about wanting to assign blame so that we can judge more harshly those people who don't believe what they're saying. And probably because we don't want to have, compassion for people who are doing destructive things uh, and so if we could say hey they they know better then it's easier to have less compassion for them versus you know they were tricked into this then we actually have to be a little bit more sympathetic and i don't think our natural inclination is to do that unless we've been luck pilled right and that will be the spot in which probably our luck stuff will intersect here and maybe that'll be a forthcoming conversation or something um let me ask you in terms of you know when you're doing studies like this would it be better, for example, to instead of using the lab leak, use the 2020 Trump big lie conspiracy election stuff where like it's unequivocally false and harmful and, you know, like all those kinds of things in a way that maybe the lab leak is a little more ambiguous or something? Or would that be a problem in terms of, you know, like the research you're trying to do? I don't think it's a problem. Um, but I, I like a little bit of ambiguity. I, I like showing that the psychological processes aren't different when it's, even when it's a little bit more plausible. So my, my, can you say more about that? So is it like highlighting that there's kind of a gray shading between hard cases or between easy cases in that sense? Yeah. So if you're asking me, uh, when I set out to do it, would I have probably rather pick something that was clearer? Yes. We would have gotten less pushback in the review process. Right. But uh, after the fact, which is of course post hoc rationalization of it, but I, I would argue that um, de- are definitely all I, think <laughs> I definitely think there's value in seeing some of the ambiguity. Um, I I think I worry that when it's stuff that's clearly easy to dismiss as obviously wrong, it makes it that much easier to be like there's the conspiracy theorist and then there's me, and that makes us less self reflective on our own beliefs. So all the time, people will do things like ask me well, are there liberal conspiracy beliefs? I'm like, yes, but I have a harder time thinking them up and pointing them out because I'm liberal, <laughs> right? sure. I'm li- more liberal in my thinking. And so it's harder for me to identify them. Uh, and I, I think when it's obviously wrong, it's too easy to dismiss and not reflect on your own beliefs and recognize the conspiracy beliefs that you hold. 
Mm. I would use big pharma if I was going to construct a left. Something, big something along those lines. Big, big corporations. Monsanto. You, you can have a lot of yeah, uh, corporate conspiracism on that side in my experience. I think um, that if I was to broadly categorize, it would definitely be the right is government conspiracies and the left is corporate conspiracies, like broadly yeah, And usually globalist or corporate or go- globalist government. Um, yeah. In my experience versus in a globalist corporate, right? They're usually doing all the horrible things in um, developing countries or something like that. Um, but I think it's an interesting idea about like edge cases versus not edge cases. It, do you feel like it, it's a thing where social scientists just need to be more explicit about we're using this example because we think it's an edge case and this example because we think it isn't and we want to see how they compare? We should probably be more thoughtful about making sure we're using more of those edge cases. And um, I, I'm going to be honest, the reason we often dodge how defensible a conspiracy belief is is because we don't want to write philosophy papers and we don't want to get mired in that in the review process <laughs> for Who being does? totally honest um well, it's because we're not good at it right that's what we need <laughs> no one like is you that's all right <laughs> uh, but it's it's that's the reason we do it i i mm-hmm. think um i mean i think this is important because it does suggest that you don't want to necessarily shut down all conspiracy beliefs right that there can be functional ones um mm. and that we don't want to yeah. make it zero, right? There's a health. There's probably some healthy level that's probably less than what we have now, but not zero. Well, this gets to our hard question of like policy, right? So we don't have a ton of time left, but you said a little bit about some of the policies you might recommend staying friends with people to try to help them have a way out. And, um, you know, where do you look at like, what are the hard policy decisions that need to be made? So things like content moderation, things like, you know, who gets banned and who doesn't. Where, where do you feel like you end up on that stuff, having gone through all of this research. Yeah. So definitely things that empower people, give them sense of control, give them self-esteem without requiring these, um, requiring these conspiracy theories in order to have it, um, making sure people have social support around them. So they're not relying on conspiracy groups. Um, you know, I know there's some big pushes like from our uh, Surgeon General talking about loneliness as an ec- a- epidemic, right? And so making sure people are connected and have social circles is uh, good. And there's some people working on that from sort of a policy government perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Content moderation, it it works probably to some extent because it prevents exposure and exposure leads to conspiracy beliefs, especially when you're in those lowered control states and you're more susceptible. But I don't know that that's something I want to advocate for as a broad policy because there's obviously dangers there. So there's other things that we can do instead. Um, pre-bunking is one. So that's debunking a conspiracy belief before people get exposed to it. That works for specific beliefs. But what I would advocate most is things like critical thinking, which is broadly, the more you can teach that, that's a broad intervention, which is helpful. And then the one I really like is you actually teach people how conspiracy theories work. So the psychological things that they rely on, uh, the techniques that mm-hmm. they use to convince people of, you know, questioning things, um, finding anomalies, the anomaly hunting type stuff. If you teach people the basics of how these clearly untenable conspiracy theories work, you know, you teach them to look more broadly at sources or how data is cherry picked, all these sorts of things, the, the use of emotional mm-hmm. appeals. There's always emotional appeals in there to get you all worked up. Um, if you teach them those again, things, a lot of cult, cult overlaps there. Techniques. Yeah. And, and like, you know, MLM techniques, kind of stuff like that. Exactly. Um, so, so there's might be other positive fallouts of presenting people from falling into cults and, and you just, you say MLMs are not cults or do they fit into that category? Oh, I would argue that MLMs are very often cults. Yes. Yeah. So I think these basic things, that's the kind of thing where I would say from a mm-hmm. policy or broad intervention perspective, we, sh- we could push on those things. They have broad benefits. They would lower conspiracism, certainly in the most extreme, least tenable ones. Mm, yeah. And I, I go back and forth on this really hard. A lot of days I feel very kind of blackpilled about the effectiveness of any interventions in our current epistemic environment to have a significant like impact, like critical thinking up against our current internet with a not, not sufficient content moderation makes me really nervous as a solution because, you know, I, I think there, there's some evidence, for example, that critical thinking could just make you a better conspiracy theorist. Um, but I also am like, I'm sympathetic to the idea that just like with mindfulness, some amount of making you aware of the cognitive processes that are making you more vulnerable to not just getting angry, but getting convinced in a, of a conspiracy theory could be 
like a useful thing to sort potentially short circuit those things in real time if you learn to sort of remind yourself of that in the moment or something um so i'm not i'm not totally opposed to those solutions um i just sometimes worry that a lot of neoliberals just grab onto those as individualist solutions and ignore the like need to figure out content moderation i mean it, i agree there needs to be systemic solutions i i'm thinking about this as an educational thing now of course mm-hmm. since one political group doesn't want us to educate people on anything that might cause them to question their particular set of political beliefs. We've got some political challenges to doing it. But I think if you could get it done, uh, there would be positive benefits. I'm also, so I am more optimistic about this next generation that has grown up in a digital world. I think they are more savvy about navigating these things, more knowledgeable and uh, aware that there's stuff out there that's nonsense that's trying to trick them, that they're being sold to. I know the evidence, yeah. the data on that, I think is kind of mixed, but I will yeah, tell you stuff that about Anne Frank, it's a little unsettling, but yeah, I yeah it's pretty saying. mixed. Like, so I've seen stuff on both sides, but right. anecdotally, when I interact with them in the classroom, I think that they have the potential to be, you know, especially given if you account for the fact that they're pretty young, um, that they have the potential to be smarter about this stuff than us. I'm, and I also think about everybody's like, oh, young people are being corrupted by the internet and led down all these terrible things. And that's always happening to some extent, right? Mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. not a non-zero amount of that but i also think that when i look at QAnon, the people that are involved in that it's not a bunch of young people it's not like our generations or older generations are smarter about that stuff so mm-hmm. I, I have hope that the younger generations will navigate this world better than we have uh, or will yeah. learn to and going back to giving them like better alternatives i wonder you know like if too much emphasis on critical thinking is like you're gonna have to take a test on conspiracism instead of like maybe the adaptation is just going to be a lot of people just tune this kind of stuff out like the way they tune out a lot of politics and stuff that they just they're not they're not um resilient to it but they just ignore it in a way that they don't have to build up a kind of intellectual resilience to it in that sense now again some of them if they hit a crisis point that might not be the best solution for them if they get targeted in the wrong kind of way but there are lots of different ways that you know the human mind adapts to new environments and i I could imagine a mix of critical thinking and apathy in the younger generation could be you know a pretty resilient response to some amount of this stuff um so yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time to share this and, and, and sharing these articles with me. Um, unfortunately, now is the time where I have to now torture you, and then we can spend some more time chatting about things in the Well, the Aaron, I'm out of time. I got to go. I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, good try. All the doors are locked. You are you are already inside the conspiracy. Uh, I'm tra- so trapped this, in a trolley. Trapped in Enlightening Round 2 Trolley Boogaloo Edition. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. So for those who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a series of trolley scenarios and you're going to tell me what you should do in that situation. Keyword there is should, not would. I don't want to know what your broken psychology would accomplish. (laughs) I want to hear you make moral judgments instead of being a psychologist for two seconds. All right. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. Should you pull the lever and save five by killing one? Classic trolley. Yes. Okay. Should you save five by pulling the lever and causing a machine to shove someone onto the tracks, derailing the train? Yes. Okay. Uh, should you save yourself by killing one? No. Hmm. Should you save yourself by letting another person die? I don't know. <laughs> it has that's to be yes or no, right? Yeah, that's not an option. Uh, I think both are acceptable options. You got to pick. Should you do which, which? Which should you do? No. No. Okay. Um, should you save your? favorite artist's complete body of works by killing the artist no okay what if the artist is begging you to save their art instead of them no okay interesting should you save the only existing sentient ai by killing one human no okay should you 
save, uh, sorry, um, what if it turns out that you are the sentient AI in this in this hypothetical? Should you let a person die to save yourself? No. Let a human die to save yourself. Okay. No. All right. Last series. Should you save a random non-human animal by killing one human? No. Should you save your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. Should you save an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Yes. All right. You survived and you're only an eco-terrorist. Congratulations. How are you feeling? I've been called worse things. Fair enough. I mean, you're a management expert, so I would assume you've been called everything. So <laughs> uh, I guess this is nothing at this point. So well, Ben, absolutely. this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find your stuff? Find you online, etc. Yeah, I'm an academic, so you know I don't actually do useful things online. Can find I don't you on do, Gen. I don't. Yeah, I don't use, do useful things in general. Um, I'm easy to find on the SMU website. You can always email me bdow at smu.edu. Uh, my Twitter. You can get in touch with me on Twitter, and I will respond. I rarely tweet, but I, I generally do respond. So, um, and I'm happy to engage with anybody. Any questions? Anything? So, feel free to reach out. I can out. attest to that. True story. Um, so yeah, thanks so much, Ben. And folks, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you would like to hear more of us talk about weird luck stuff and conspiracism, come join us on Patreon and hang around for a little bit of VIP room content. Um, but either way, thank you so much for listening and see you all next time. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thank you to our newest monthly voidlings, Marta Pallet, Thomas Freeman, Deference, Difference, Inference, Reference, and Brian's Skagelaron. I apologize, some of the text got screwed up there. And thanks to our newest monthly avout, April Poff. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, give to modestneeds.org, then visit deepfakestop.com, Alex Beneshek, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, A Wise Zin Once Said, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Inconsistently Disappointed in Humanity. Good, good new name. I appreciate that one. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with its new co-host, Callie Wright of the Queer Spanning Podcast. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter what the people on the internet tell you, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.